Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Our scripture reading is 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read the first six verses if you'll join me in hearing God's word as it says to us there. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, you may be seated. 9-11-2001 changed our world in many ways, and one of which was the way that we now began to strategize in the needed war that was at hand. One article puts it this way, the September 11 attack jolted the U.S. Army forces into a new era of war fighting in which commando strikes, intelligence and collection, manhunts now overshadowed heavy armors and big bombers Of yesterday's conflicts. In other words, before 9 11, the enemy was known. He was somewhat visible. He was marked by a distinct uniform or clear insignia that demonstrated who they were, what they stood for, or at least what they fought for. And we as a country, as long as we outmanned, outmaneuvered, outpowered, we could take on anyone. Because no one wanted to fight us in a head-to-head battle or war. But after 9-11, that war shifted, did it not, to an enemy that is largely unknown, that attempts to come secretly and stealthily to blend in so as to release terror and ultimately death on unsuspecting and oftentimes innocent bystanders. And that was and still is the aim to this day. Not ultimate destruction or devastation, although if they could achieve that, they would. But rather disruption and havoc and fear. And so the war that we are in these days is simply called the war on terror. And this new era, this new battle resembles in many ways the Christian life. 
because our enemy, Satan, is a defeated foe. He was defeated by Christ through the cross, through Christ's death, and through his resurrection. And so ultimately, Satan cannot overturn or ultimately destroy or dominate, but yet, nevertheless, he is an ever-present nuisance and pest and bother. And therefore, he seeks havoc in this world and especially in the life of believers. He uses deception, he uses duplicity in a sense to sneak in so as to strike terror, to wreak havoc, to have this whole host of sins and problems, both within as well as without. And so just as our government tries to utilize counterintelligence to expose this new enemy, so too we as believers are armed with knowledge so as to be prepared to fight this type of attack. And though, as I mentioned, Satan is defeated, he is condemned, he is judged already, the battle goes on. And it is not an easy battle, as you all know too well. But we must be prepared for it. But I think we can find solace, we can find comfort that the victory is already one. Therefore, we need not succumb to the temptations or be defeated by any schemes, but rather we can be armed with this knowledge, the knowledge that is given to us by the Word of God and specifically this passage this morning. And so we will look at these verses in two points, the new reality in Christ, and then second, the new identity in Christ. First, the new reality in Christ. Again, the context of this passage and much of this book is on suffering. And how is it that we are going to handle and experience properly the conflict that will inevitably happen in this world? Because there will be conflicts. If we live according to the commands of Christ, then those commands will set us at odds with the ways of the world. It's not that we are looking for conflict. We're not trying to stir it up. Far from it. Rather, we are to live at peace with all men, the scripture says. As far as it is possible, live at peace with all. But that peace does not come at all costs. We're not to compromise what we're called to just so that we can have this false sense of peace with the world. No, we are to live our lives in the light of what the Scripture says. And we're to live our lives in the face of God. We're to live our lives with a clear conscience. To live our lives to the glory of God as we even heard last week. And if that means conflict, then so be it. And Peter What he is saying, not only in this book, but in this passage specifically, is that we should expect it. And yet, even as I say that, I would say that most Christians are not okay with conflict in their own life and in the world. We want to feel included. We don't want to be 
different. And, and in some sense, that is just human nature. But yet, we must realize that when we come to Christ, we come to a new reality. That in Christ, we are brought out of the world and we are brought into the kingdom of Christ. And since we're brought from one kingdom to a different kingdom, we are brought into the family of God. And we now come under His rule, His reign. We do our lives and live our lives according to the dictates of that king. Because we are now dressed in the robes of Christ. As a result, that puts us, in a sense, in the uniform of the kingdom of Christ. And therefore, that's going to put you at odds with the world and the flesh and the devil. And this, again, shouldn't come as a surprise to us as we understand the scriptures. Because we read that there has been a cosmic war that has been raging since the beginning of time. We read this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, do we not? Right at the the fall of, of mankind, we read that there is now enmity between the seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And we know that that seed of that woman is the seed of Christ. And so the whole of scriptures can be depicted as this battle between these two seeds that rages on to this day. And so we're not immune to it. And as a result, we need to be ready for it. And that is why Peter begins this section, chapter 4, verse 1, saying that we need to arm ourselves. But before you think this is a battle cry or an appeal to go out and purchase some firearms or for you to be more political, it is not. Because we know that our ultimate enemy is not flesh and blood. We're not to fight with the armaments or the arguments of this world. No amount of firepower will do anything in this battle that we are to engage ourselves in. But that doesn't mean that we're not to arm ourselves. No, we are to put on the armor of God. But notice where this armor is begins where this armor takes place he says there in verse one arm yourselves with this same way of thinking that the battle begins in the mind in your thoughts in the ways that you think as many of you know and are very familiar with Ligonier calls their radio program renewing your mind And I think that's an appropriate title because our mind needs to be continually renewed. Continually renewed with knowledge, continually renewed with truth. And we need the truth of God's word pressed upon our mind continually. Our minds need to be continually renewed or reformed. Because our thoughts and ultimately our actions are dictated by our minds. Our bodies work at the impulses of our mind. In other words, what we do, what we say, doesn't happen independently, does it? 
It happens because what is going on in here, what is going on in our minds and in our brains. And so Paul or Peter here is saying we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. So how is it that we are to renew our minds? What is the truth that needs to be put in there so that we may be armed? What are the bullets, so to speak, that we need to put in the chambers of our minds for this battle? Well, Peter tells us very specifically. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, we need to arm ourselves with this same way of thinking. In other words, we need to know that just as Christ suffered, so too we will suffer. That the Christian life is not a life of ease. It's not walking down easy streets. It's not all kumbaya and by and by. That all of your troubles will be done away with and gone when you come to Christ. No, in many ways, as you come to Christ, you begin to swim upstream, don't you? Through coming to Christ and and coming to the faith. But that's not when the troubles end, but that's oftentimes when the troubles begin. But as we've been seeing throughout this book, that it's through these difficulties, it's through these sufferings and through these persecutions that our faith is forged. It's forged in the fire of affliction. That the vine is pruned through suffering so as to be made more fruitful. Now, that doesn't mean that that fire and that pruning is fun or even enjoyable. No, oftentimes it's very painful and difficult. But this is the place that we discover that our faith is real and that it is genuine. You remember the parable of the sower that Jesus speaks And he talks about different types of seed. And he talks about how some seed fell upon the rocky soil. And he said how this seed sprouted very quickly, but soon thereafter the sun scorched it. And when the disciples ask the meaning of this parable, Jesus tells them specifically about this seed that it withers due to the tribulations and persecutions that rise according to to the word and on account of the word. In other words, they didn't have any roots. And therefore, when the persecution came, when the affliction came, it just withered away. And so when you go through times of persecution and, and times of tribulation and you don't wither away, but rather your faith is flourishing or expanding or growing even through the despite that persecution, it demonstrates that your faith is genuine. And that has nothing to do ultimately with us, is it? It's not due to our faith or even to our faithfulness, but because we are connected to the vine that gives us everything that we need in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that tribulation, in the midst of that difficulty. It's Christ who's supplying all of your needs. And there's many of you that have experienced these things, even very recently. And whereas you wouldn't wish them upon your worst enemy, you are thankful for them because during this time you've seen how Christ has supplied all of your needs. 
Not only has your faith endured, but your faith has flourished. And through these times of troubles and difficulties, you have seen Christ to be very real, very present in your life. Why is that? Because Christ suffered also, as Peter says here. Christ suffered in the flesh, and therefore Christ knows exactly what we need. But the point is this, that we're not to be surprised by suffering or conflict, are we? In fact, in just a few verses, in verse 12 of chapter 4, we will read this when Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trials when it comes upon you to test you. Peter's saying, don't be surprised by it. You should expect it. You should know that it's coming. Jesus said the same in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble. And so we need to arm ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves so that this won't come as a shock or surprise to us when these things come upon us, or perhaps they're even upon you right now. You shouldn't say, Lord, what are you doing? I thought I wasn't supposed to have any of these things. No, these are the ways that Christ shows for himself to be present and evident in your life. But here comes the good news. Christ has won the victory, right? As Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. He also goes on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that is exactly what Peter has been saying. In fact, he ended last chapter, chapter 3, with that thought that, yes, Christ suffered, but his suffering had purpose. He is suffering no longer, that through his death, specifically through his resurrection, he has gained the victory. And as a result, as it ends in verse 22 of chapter 3, it says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, everything is underneath the feet of Christ. All angels, all powers, all authorities, even Satan himself is under the feet of Christ. And that's why Luther said quite glibly that even Satan is God's Satan. And even the devil is God's devil. Not that God is the author of sin by any means but God even uses the devil for his own ends and his own means and his own purposes so victory is gained through Christ and that is the reality that we must live in that we don't live in defeats we live in the victory of Christ the life of Christ that comes through the light of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and that leads us to the second points. And this is where we need to really arm ourselves with this knowledge that we have a new identity in Christ. That since Christ has won the victory, then we have won the victory with Him. That we have gone from death unto life. We've gone from dead creatures unto new creatures. And that we are now new creatures in Christ because of what Christ has done for us. You all experientially know what this means. Oftentimes, out here in the hallway, I'll hear you talking about certain things that have happened the day before, especially in the fall in the South. And I'll hear you say or ask, how did your team do? 
And usually the response is, we won. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you did nothing, right? You were not a part of the coaching staff. You did not play the game. You were not out there blocking and passing and, and throwing the football. There is no we about it. But the response is, we won, or perhaps we lost. That we so closely identify with these teams, sometimes too closely, that it is as if we are on the team ourselves. Well, in Christ, there is no closely about it. We are on the team. We are identified in Christ because Christ identifies with us. He is our head. We are his body. He is the vine. We are the branches. He is the covenant representative. And so what he accomplished was accomplished on our behalf. It was done for us. And so the victory is won. The power of sin over our life is defeated. And as a result, there is no sin that is now too great. And so for us ever to say, well, that sin is just too powerful, too strong, too addicting, too much of a temptation for me that I will never have victory over it. I will never win. I will always be identified by that sin. That is to deny the gospel itself, beloved. That is to say that that sin is greater than Christ. And we as Christians should never say that. Because there is no sin, nor Satan himself, that is stronger than Christ and the cross. That doesn't mean that we're not prone to particular sins or tempted by them. No, there are. But there should be no sins that are life-dominating, life-identifying sins in our life any longer. And that's why Peter says here, that those who have suffered in the flesh have ceased from sins. Does that mean that they are perfect, that they don't sin anymore? No, far from it. It means that they're dead to sins. As he goes on to say in verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time, no longer in the flesh, but for the will of God. That that old way is done away. And we live for a new way. We don't live towards the will of sin. We live towards the will of God. Peter goes on to say and gives examples. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless lawless idolatry. Notice what he is saying there. And you you need to take grasp of this and even appreciate this. Verse 3, he's saying, those things you did in the past, but you no longer do. In fact, he, he says those things in the time that is spent has sufficed. In other words, you've spent enough time in the past. You've spent enough time wasting your life in foolishness and folly, in darkness and in sin. And you are to no longer identify by those things that you used to be identified by. 
And he goes on, as I said, to give very specific examples. He essentially says that you're no longer to get caught up in sex and booze. You might say, is is that really what he's saying? Yeah, that's what he's saying. How about that for relevance? Oftentimes we think that it's only our generation that struggles with those things. No, the Bible knows the human sinful nature. And that the sins of our culture are no different than the sins as they've ever been. Oftentimes we think that our culture is a culture that promotes sensuality and gratification of the flesh with all of its indulgences. And it does. But that is nothing new. So it was in Peter's day. And so it was since the fall of mankind. All you have to do is read Genesis to know that all of those sins have been there. But nevertheless, they're not to be a part of the Christian life anymore. Nor are we to compromise on these things to be more culturally acceptable. The Christian ethic, the Christian sensuality and sexuality has never been accepted in this world. It never will be. And likewise, as we read those things, we must understand and not underestimate the the power of these sins or even the power of the devil himself. They don't have many tactics, but they are effective ones, right? That's why as you look at that list and you think of the culture back then and you think of the culture now and the cultures aren't very much different, are they? Because those sins and those temptations are very effective. And therefore, we as Christians shouldn't flirt around with those sins. We shouldn't try to test those temptations. We shouldn't see how close we can get to them without falling over the edge. No, Peter is saying that is part of your past. Don't make it a part of your present. Or even more, part of your future. We're to cut it off. We're to cut it out. We're not to give the world or the flesh or the devil an inch. Because otherwise it will take... A mile, as they say. When negotiating peace with Germany, or when asked to at least negotiate peace with Germany, Winston Churchill once said, you can't reason with a lion when your head is in its mouth. And that is exactly right. When you are in the throes of temptation, you can't try to reason with it, can you? The only thing that you can do is get out of there, to get out of that situation. And so don't waste your time. You've died to that way. You've died to the past. Live in the new victory. Live in the new identity that is yours in Christ. And at the same time, as I say that, I know that there are many things that are a part of your past that love to rise up. But there are many memories that are sometimes difficult to put to death. That even though we are new in Christ, we have much of the old man that still remains. Along with perhaps many friends of the past. At times like to come knocking. Like for us to join in with them as 
Peter says, in this same flood of debauchery as we used to. But notice what he says there in verse 4 with respect to this. They're surprised when you don't join them in these things any longer. They might even ask why. These are things that we used to do together. And you might tell them the reason why. And ultimately, they don't understand because they don't know this new life in Christ or these new desires that you have. And as a result, they are incensed. They are angry. And it even says that they will malign you. They will bring about insults and accusations. And again, all of this is a part of that greater war, that greater temptation. That is seeking for us to concede. Seeking for us to give in. Seeking for us to to wave the white flag. To stop the fight. To lay down our arms, so to speak. And there's nothing greater that Satan would love than for you to do exactly that. And therefore, he loves to to mock, and he loves to deride, and he loves to shame. He loves to wreak havoc. To wreak fear and shame and doubt in your heart and in your mind. And is it the devil, is it the flesh, is it the world? Sometimes it's hard to discern, but we know that all of those things can have a part and play in our mind and in the way that we think. So that there's times that we think, wow, do I really believe this? Do I really have others to know the things that have gone on in in my past? If others knew, would they still accept me? Would they even think of me as a a Christian? And quite frankly, does even God really want me? Surely he's ashamed of me. Perhaps angry with me. And a whole host of other lies. That again, either we feed ourselves or the world feeds them to us. Perhaps these are things that you are even thinking even now as you come into this place. And Satan loves to continue to have those lies and lies and more lies. And that's why we need to be armed with the truth. And we need to have the truth of God's word easily at hand. And so when those thoughts come up, we can battle them. And that we can remember the new identity that we have in Christ. Let me give you two examples of two Christians from the past. And the ways that they battled this type of temptation. And this is where reading good Christian biographies can be of such great help. The first is Martin Luther. When Luther was asked how he overcame the devil... He replied, well, when he, that is the devil, comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks, who lives here? The dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. 
And the devil, seeing the nail prints in his hands and the pierced side, takes flight immediately. He who you seek is no longer here. Christ Jesus has taken up residence. And our identity is no longer that old man, that old person. Our identity now is in Christ. The second is John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who had quite the past, who was a a drunkard and seller of slaves. And so when he wrote Amazing Grace and said, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, he's not speaking in hyperbole. It's not a hypothetical wretch that he's talking about. He knew and understood firsthand his own wretchedness. And oftentimes that would still rear its ugly head and make him doubt and make him depressed and have him struggle in his faith. And so what was it that would help him in such times? Well, he put a sign above his mantle. And it was the sign of the word of God. It was a scriptural verse that obviously meant a lot to him and would help him in those times of struggle and those battles. And it was a verse from Deuteronomy that says this, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Notice the truth of that word for Newton specifically, that before Christ, Newton didn't just sell slaves, he was a slave. A slave to his own sin. That was his old man. But this scripture says that you shall remember that even though you were slaves, the Lord your God rescued you. The Lord your God redeemed you. And notice, it's the Lord your God that did it. Because he is not ashamed of you. And that same Lord and Savior is the same Lord and Savior that has redeemed and rescued us. In Him we live. In Him we move and have our being. In Him we are set free from the power of sin and even all of its doubts and all of its shame and all of its guilt. And so as we battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we don't do it on our own, do we? As Ephesians 6 says, we're to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Let Christ answer the door. Let Christ be the one that has already gained the victory over that sin in your life. Because it is through Christ that we are redeemed from all of our captivity. We are set free from sin. We are set free from that slavery. We have new life in Christ. Luther and Newton used those wretched memories to remember that Christ is greater than all of our sin. It's greater than all of our shame. And so at the very end of John Newton's life, he said this quite famously, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is is a great Savior. In other words, he said, I can't remember much anymore. But there are two things that I will not forget. That I am a great sinner, but Christ is even a greater Savior. 
That was the new reality for Newton. That was now his new identity in Christ. And as a result, he could never forget or could ever forget. Nor can we. That we are indeed great sinners. But the Lord Jesus Christ is even a greater Savior. Amen. Well, as we come to the table, then we have no greater picture than that which is pictured for us in this supper. That our sin required for the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, to give of his body and of his blood so that we can be rescued and redeemed. And so as we come, we should come in a spirit of confession. We'll do that first privately, and then we will use the corporate confession of sins printed in our bulletin. Let's go to the Lord in a time of silent confession.